has seen a lot of changes over the last several years. Not only have we been in the midst of a five-year transition with Gary and Lewis, uh, but we also uh, hired a new youth pastor earlier in the year. And I just want to say I think that we've just been really blessed because um, I think that these have been some really healthy transitions for us. Uh, our church has only known Gary Phillips as its senior pastor for its entire existence. So when a church goes through a change like that, some churches don't adjust to that well. Um, and, uh, and usually when you're hiring a new youth pastor, it's because uh, maybe an, yet another youth pastor has fled for greener pastures or realized that youth ministry isn't exactly what he thought it would be when he was in youth group. Or it's because he's been fired. Um, and the reasons for that can while vary uh, greatly. Um, if you were here at Midweek on the Mountain uh, this week, you heard from Damon's testimony that it's not always because the youth pastor has been incredibly irresponsible. Uh, sometimes it's because the philosophy of the youth pastor on ministry is different than, than the church, and that difference can, can mean that they, they split. I'm really, really glad that you guys didn't get a new youth pastor because you fired the first one. Um, <laughs> thankful to be here. You know, I just think that we've been blessed, uh, that the changes taking place at SNBC have been really healthy. And that's not to say that there hasn't been difficulties or that it's, not e or, or that it's easy. Uh, this past year has been more difficult than I expected it to be for sure. Um, but I know that the Lord is working in the body here at SNBC, and for that I'm really excited. Uh, in addition to changes in our pastoral staff, uh, we announced to the church about a year ago at our mid-year meeting that we'd be shifting our focus in the children and youth ministries to a family-centered model of ministry. And that, that announcement fueled a lot of conversations and questions from you all about what is family ministry and what is this going to mean for Signal Mountain Bible Church. Lewis spent time at family camp last year uh, discussing his thoughts on family ministry, and it probably seems to everyone that we've been talking about this for a while with no real change. Uh, there's, a couple, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, a shift in ministry philosophy doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow process. Uh, it takes time for us to reorient how we approach children's and youth ministries, uh, not only from the staff and volunteer perspective, but also from the parents' perspective. Uh, and two, we also spent the majority of last year looking for our new youth pastor and getting him here to Signal Mountain Bible Church. Uh, we put our thoughts on family ministry on hold uh, because we thought that the Lord might be providing us with a youth pastor who not only has a heart for family ministry, but would also bring some great ideas on how to bring that, get it off the ground. And uh, we're thankful and blessed that uh, we do have that in Damon. So, um, so we're excited. We've been, bl we've been blessed... Uh, with that. And all that's to say that we just ask for your patience uh, as we make this shift. It's not going to be overnight. Um, now that Damon's here, he, Ruby, and I have been meeting uh, regularly. We call ourselves the Family Ministry Team or the FMT for short, and we'll have our own t shirts and bumper stickers and logos soon. Um, but you have to be in the club. So, why are we doing this? Why family ministry? Well, it's by God's design that the Christian faith be passed along to the next generation within the context of the family. 
That responsibility of Christian parents to teach their children about Jesus is not something that we delegate to the church. The heart of family ministry is found in that passage that I just read to you in the pastoral prayer from Deuteronomy 6. And that's where we're going to primarily spend our time today. I want to start by looking at Deuteronomy itself and its place in the Old Testament. Of course, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. If you, you, you might at least know the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's in the section of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, or in Jewish tradition, Torah. And the traditional view is that Moses is the author of all five books. And for many, many centuries, this view went unchallenged. Um, however, in the 19th century, liberal scholars began to question Moses' authorship, not only of Deuteronomy, but all five books. Um, the scholars noticed what they perceived to be discrepancies and inconsistencies in the style of writing, so they assume oh, it must be more than one guy. For example, they asked, why do we have a creation account in Genesis 1 that's immediately followed by what seems to be the same thing, but it's written differently and it focuses more on that creation of Adam? Why would, there, why would we retell the same story? Oh, well, their idea is... There, there, there must be something going on here. There must, must be some other authors writing these. And their hypothesis, and calling it a hypothesis is key here, is that the Pentateuch is a redaction of four documents. And you're like, I've never heard of those documents. Well, partly because they don't really exist. They're speculating. Uh, it's purely speculation. There's no proof that these documents exist. They're also ignoring that what Scripture says about itself. Uh, passages such as Numbers 33.2, Joshua 2 Kings 21.8, Malachi 4.4, and even Jesus in Luke 24.44 all ascribe authorship of the Pentateuch to Moses. Um, what's interesting, though, about these four hypothetical documents that I mentioned is that Deuteronomy stands alone. One of the four documents is Deuteronomy, while the other three, they say, are pieced together to make up Genesis through Numbers. So why is that? Well, if you've ever read all five books together, you'll notice that Deuteronomy is very different than the others. In Genesis, Moses tells us the prehistory of Israel from creation to the patriarchs. In Exodus, he gives the most recent history of Israel that involves himself uh, from the deliverance of Israel from Egypt up to the completion of the tabernacle. In Leviticus, Moses gives um, a detailed account on how to be holy and how to live with a holy God. In Numbers, Moses gives the second half of, that, of his history with Israel, beginning with the census, which is why we call it Numbers, all the way through Israel's wandering and ending in the plains of Moab on the edge of the Jordan River and the Promised Land. And if we were to jump over Deuteronomy to, to Joshua, the narrative is resumed. When Joshua assu assumes leadership over the people, and he leads them into the Promised Land. So what happens in Deuteronomy? What is it about? Well, as I said in Numbers, it ends with the people awaiting to enter the Promised Land. However, Moses can't go with them. Because of Moses' selfishness in Numbers 20.10, the Lord say that he and Aaron cannot lead the people into the promised land. They can't go. So before they cross the Jordan, Moses writes Deuteronomy. 
And what's important for us to understand about Deuteronomy is that it's written in a way that follows the pattern of an ancient Near Eastern treaty. It's called a suzerain vassal treaty. Now, you don't need to remember that term, but it's important for you to understand what it is. It's a covenant document between a king, the suzerain, and his subjects, the vassals. The king is the greater party in this covenant, and the subjects are the lesser party. And Deuteronomy is that covenant document between God and Israel. A covenant, of course, is a relationship between two parties, wherein each party they commit themselves to one another by, by means of a promise. And just before they're about to enter the land in which God promised to them, without their leader Moses, who up to this point has been synonymous with God's covenant with Israel, God renews his covenant with Israel by way of Deuteronomy. Understanding Deuteronomy as a covenant document is fundamental to understanding its theology, and we'd be remiss to undertake any serious study of Deuteronomy without that understanding. We could do an entire sermon series on covenants, the concept of covenants, the covenants we all find in the Bible. But for, your pur- for our purposes today, you need to know that this isn't a brand new covenant. Deuteronomy isn't a brand new covenant. It's a continuation of the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. Listen to Exodus 19, verses 3 to 8. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of, of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. God initiates that covenant, and the people respond in affirmation to the covenant. So the covenant already exists. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy renews and solidifies that covenant. So what does a suzerain-vassal treaty look like? And how does Deuteronomy follow that pattern? Well, it begins with a preamble. These are the words of so-and-so. It might be the king or it might be his messenger. But these are the words of so-and-so. And And then there's an historical prologue. It recaps all the events that uh, lead up to this covenant and form the basis of it. Um, Then there are some general stipulations that are given that concern the future relationship of both parties in the covenant. They're related to that historical prologue and... um, uh, that come before it, and then they summarize the purpose of these specific stipulations that are going to come after it. Uh, Next, there are divine witnesses. Deities are called to witness the covenant, witness the treaty between the suzerain and the vassals. And finally, there's a list of blessings for obedience to the covenant and curses for breaching the covenant. The form of Deuteronomy is strikingly close to this. The preamble is in Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. And then from verse 6 through chapter 4, Moses recounts the events of the Exodus that have led them to the edge of the Promised Land. 
reminding them of all that the Lord has done for them. In chapters 5 through 11, Moses gives the general stipulations of their relationship. They outline those broad principles that are going to guide the relationship between God and his people. And from chapter 12 to 26, he expands on those where specific statements are given. These are the uh, specific uh, stipulations. Um, They lay out what God expects from his people in clear, specific statements. But the difference in in the form comes at the end. Um, Those last two items, the list of blessings and curses in chapters 27 to 29, come before the calling of witnesses. Those are in chapter 30, verse 19, 31, verse 19, and most of chapter 32. And, of course, the book ends with Moses' final blessing to the people of Israel, his death, and the passing of leadership onto Joshua. So it's in that middle section, those general stipulations, those broad principles that are going to outline the relationship of God and his people that we find our passage. Um, These stipulations are going to define how the Israelites will live as God's people, chosen and set apart in this new land that they're about to enter, surrounded by people who worship pagan gods. Their very lives are going to be a testimony that the Israelites belong to Yahweh. They are his people. So if you're not already at Deuteronomy 6, go ahead and turn there. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 first. Moses had just, has just repeated the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and now he gives the rationale for his retelling of them. So verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you were going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice the reasoning behind the commandments so that they would act accordingly in the promised land. The reason for Moses teaching the law is so that the people would fear the Lord and the evidence of this fear of the Lord would be obedience to the law. So because of this, the people are commanded to listen to what is taught them. They need to know what the law is. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This section of scripture is known as the Shema in the Jewish tradition because Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, which is the first word of this verse. This verse has been called the fundamental truth of Israel's religion. It's a confession of faith. But it isn't the easiest sentence in the world to translate. In Hebrew, it's only six words. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That second sentence translates literally to us, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. There are no verbs in the sentence, so what does it mean? The first part isn't too difficult to translate. Uh, NASB gives us the sense of the meaning, the, the Lord is our God, while if you have ESV, you'll see that it's translated the Lord, our God. That's a more of a literal translation. But the second part is the tricky one. Some translations say the Lord is one, meaning he is one God. 
not like the many gods that pagans worship, such as the Canaanites, uh, whose land the Israelites were about to conquer. Others interpret the Lord as one to mean that he's consistent when other gods are inconsistent and fickle. He'll not change in the way that he loves or deals with the people. So you can trust him to do what he says he'll do, and you can trust his commandments. Other translations say the Lord alone, uh, meaning the Lord alone is our God. This is also a true statement because there's no one else like him. In Exodus 15, 11, the Israelites sing this song to Yahweh, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? One commentator says that whatever translation uh, is chosen, the essential meaning is clear. Yahweh was to be the sole object of Israel's worship, allegiance, and affection. So if verse 4 is the fundamental truth of Israel's religion, verse 5 is the fundamental duty founded upon it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God's love for his people never changes because he is one. And since he is their God and he is one, Israel is commanded to love God and the extent of their love was to be complete. Heart, soul, and mind and might. Love in this passage indicates loyalty and allegiance. So the requirement of the people in this covenant relationship is that they love God completely by being exclusively loyal to him. Uh, John Frame says that there should be no competing loyalties. The Lord is the head of the covenant. He forbids us to grant lordship to anyone else. And from that love will come obedience to the law. Uh, Peter Craigie says in his superb commentary on Deuteronomy, I would recommend that one if you're looking for commentaries on Deuteronomy. Obedience would be possible only when it was a response of love to the God who had brought the people out of Egypt and was leading them into the promised land. It's why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. However, in our fallen sinful minds, we tend to get that order reversed we tend to think that God wants us to be obedient to him first. If you've ever invited a non-Christian to church, have you ever heard them say, no, because they need to change before they step inside the church? Obedience is not the basis of our relationship with God. Love is the basis of God's relationship with his people. God did not choose Israel because of some inherent superlatives. He chose them out of love. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God initiated the coven, uh, his covenantal relationship with Israel because he loved him. Um, let's look at this in the context of a marriage. When we enter the marriage covenant, uh, it's the basis of that relationship is the love that the husband and wife have for one another. Now, inevitably, every marriage, and all of you will probably have different rules, but there are some unwritten rules in your marriage, right? Uh, those rules are going to help make your marriage go smoothly. For example, men... 
if you leave your dirty underwear on the floor of your bedroom, does that go well for you? No. Uh, Your wife is likely to get annoyed with you, and the more times you do that, the more likely her annoyance with you will grow. Um, These types of rules, though, they don't define the relationship, but if you break them, it's going to make your relationship more difficult. The relationship isn't founded on these rules, but it is an important part of it. If the marriage relationship were based solely upon these rules, then the relationship wouldn't last. That's a, that would be a contract, not a covenant. And unfortunately, we've seen what happens when marriage is treated as a contract rather than a covenant. And the same goes for our relationship with God. If our relationship with God is based solely on our adherence to the law, then we have no relationship. The requirement to enter into a covenant relationship with God is to reciprocate the love that he already has for us. Our response to his love for us is to love him with every part of our being. Verses 4 and 5 are the central theme of not only Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch, but the entire Old Testament. When the Pharisees asked Jesus, uh, what is the greatest commandment, what's his answer? Well, he quotes this passage, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He gets that from Leviticus 19.18. Listen to what he says. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. God is their God, and he is one. Therefore, the people respond in love, and only from a love for God can the people obey him? That's the Old Testament. In verse 6, it says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So what, what are these words? Well, all of Deuteronomy, frankly, but it begins with the love of God. In the Hebrew culture, the heart is the seat of not just the emotions, but the mind as well. So the people are to learn and to know the law of God. And knowing God is transformative. Another commentator says this, summarizing all three verses, understanding who God is, that's verse 4, should lead to absolute loyalty, that's verse 5, which leads to internal transformation, verse 6. Now let's read verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. If verses 4 and 5 are the central theme of the Old Testament, then I think it's um, uh, pretty significant that we find that this verse immediately follows it. It tells us about the importance of passing along that legacy of faith to the next generation. After understanding these truths for themselves, verse 6 Parents are charged with intentionally teaching their children about the covenant relationship between God and his people. And when and where was this to happen? Everywhere. All the time. Notice the pairs of opposites in the verse. It says, sit, walk, lie down, rise up, in your house, by the way. Those pairs of opposites are intended not only to include those two things, but everything that falls in between them. Um, God is supposed to be the topic of conversation in every home, every day, all the time. The command in verse 7 means that parents not only 
intentionally teach them, give specific instruction to their kids about God. Um, but they're also to live out their faith in front of them, taking opportunity, every opportunity, to talk about Him. Paul echoes the same responsibility in Ephesians 6, 4. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God's design of the family makes it the perfect place for discipleship to take place. God created man and woman to be together in marriage. Genesis 2, 24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He also instructed them in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's family right there. And God created it in the beginning along with everything else. Family didn't evolve out of a, a society's need to survive. It's been God's design from the very beginning. And it's the perfect place for discipleship to take place. When Jesus called his disciples, he, did he ask them to follow him only on Sundays, not seeing him any other time the rest of the week? No. They spent every waking hour with Jesus. Uh, if you were here for Midweek on the Mountain, uh, you heard Damon share from his testimony about telling his youth pastor that he wanted to go into youth ministry. And then, then his youth pastor invited him to spend five days with him to see what it was like. Not for an hour or two, a couple of days a week, but five whole days. He was asked to be immersed in his life. That's, that's how to disciple someone. Your children are in church one, two, maybe three days a week. But guess who's always around their children? Parents. It's the perfect place for a child to be immersed in a discipleship relationship with the people that love them more than anyone else in this world. They get to see mom and dad live out their faith in the everyday ups and downs of life. Let's take mom and dad's marriage relationship for example. The marriage relationship between a husband and wife is intended to mirror that covenant relationship between God and his people. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes that relation, the marriage relationship in just that way. The wife is to submit to the husband since he's the head of the household just as Christ is head of the church. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Our children are to see that mom and dad love one another just as Jesus loves them. When we see beautiful sunsets, mountains, oceans, do we take the opportunity to remind our children that the God, our God is the creator of it all? When we discipline our children, do we talk about God's discipline of his children and that he still loves us even in the midst of that discipline? Do we take the time to talk about sin, how it separates us from a holy God and how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross removes that stain of sin so that we can be with him forever? Parents, we can take most any conversation and situation and use it as an opportunity to teach our children about the Lord. This is the heart of family ministry. Parents discipling their kids. Uh, in Steve Wright's book, A Parent Privilege, Lewis quoted it a couple of weeks ago. Thank you, Damon, for sharing it with us. I uh, recommend this book to you. Uh, he says, Before there were churches, Sunday schools, and youth groups, God entrusted parents with the privilege to teach their children. Uh, another great book I want to recommend to you, The Legacy Path by Brian Haynes. In it, he says, it only takes one generation of parents to forsake their role as faith trainers for a culture passionate about God to turn from him. 
and embrace the gods of belief systems and lifestyle of the pagans. Parents, it's an incredible privilege and responsibility that we have to teach our children the truths about our great God and Savior. Uh, let's finish reading our passage here. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In later Jewish tradition, this uh, came to be taken literally, but I don't think that's the intention here. Uh, I think we're to read it uh, figuratively, but of course many Christians do things like what's described here. Uh, how many of you have a Bible verse displayed somewhere in your house? I know that we have Romans 8.28 over a door because I just hung it up a couple of weeks ago. There are probably some others. Um, some people like to write scripture on post-it notes and place it, uh, put it in places where they're gonna, they know they're going to see it every day. Uh, the mirror, the refrigerator, the steering wheel on their car. Um, we do things like this to remind us to whom we belong. And that's the intention here for the people to be reminded of what the Lord has done for them and what he expects of them. I want to make a couple observations from a big picture perspective before we end with some application points. I stated at the beginning Deuteronomy is a covenant document between God and Israel. And in the middle of that, we find the central theme of the Old Testament, that God alone is the God of Israel, and they should love him with their whole being. Therefore, they're supposed to write the words of God's law on their hearts, but uh, of course, we know that the Israelites didn't do a very good job of writing the law in their hearts because they continually broke God's commandment over and over and over again. But in Jeremiah 31, God speaks of a new covenant where he would write the law on their hearts. He makes an internal heart change. The good news for us is that we learn from the New Testament that Gentiles are grafted into that new covenant. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can have a heart that loves God. Because of the Holy Spirit, we can obey His commandments. Ministering to our families can only happen if we love God. And we can only love God when we've been transformed. If you've never given your life to God and entered into that covenant relationship with Him, uh, the elders that you saw up here sending out the REACH team or, or Damon or I would love to have a conversation with you after the service. In the beginning, I asked, why are we doing this? Why family ministry? As we've seen from our passage, it's parents' divine duty to pass on the legacy of faith to the next generation in the everyday of life. Now, we're not intending to guilt trip parents who feel that they're inadequately doing their job. Um, rather, we want to hold you accountable to your responsibility. We want to support you, encourage you, provide you with resources and equip you. That's that's our job as pastors, according to Ephesians 4.12, to equip the saints. But you mustn't delegate your duty. John Angel James, a 19th century English pastor, says this about discipling our children. Here, fix your center. Here, direct your aim. Here, concentrate your efforts, your energies, and your prayers. Remember, their religious education is your business. Whatever age you call in from ministers or teachers, you never must, you never can, you never should delegate this work. God will hold you responsible for the religion of your children. 
However, we can't pass along a legacy of faith to the next generation if we're unfamiliar with that faith ourselves. When summarizing Deuteronomy 6-7, Wayne Grudem says this, Listen, all the people of Israel were expected to be able to understand the words of Scripture well enough to be able to teach them diligently to their children. This teaching would not have consisted merely of rote memorization devoid of understanding, for the people were to discuss the words of Scripture during their activities of sitting in the house or walking or going to bed or getting up in the morning. We must devote ourselves to the study of God's Word and personal discipline, personal spiritual discipline. But we also have our own personal faith experiences that we can share with our children. Um, Another book, I don't have it up here, God, Marriage, and Family. If you're looking for a theology on marriage and family, uh, I recommend this. Andreas Kostenberger is the author, and he speaks of the parents' duty that they instill their religious heritage in their children. And this heritage centers on the personal experience of God's deliverance from sin and his revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Israel was to, uh, 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 to reflect on their experience of being delivered by the hand of God, we've been delivered from sin, and we can share that with our children. Have you ever shared your testimony with your children? I just realized I don't think I have. We'll have a conversation later. Um, we must know God personally and know his word in order to pass the faith on to our children. Of course, our church isn't made up entirely of parents with children in the home. Uh, you may be empty nesters with adult children who've started their own families or perhaps you've never had children in the first place. So do you get to escape any and all responsibility in family ministry? Not at all. You know, when we have a baby dedication, uh, we ask parents these three questions. We bring them in front of you and we ask them to answer, do you commit to so live that you model the truth of the gospel in your family, demonstrating Jesus' love in your home? Do you commit to so labor in what God has called you to do that you demonstrate the value of honoring God in your work? for it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And do you commit to so love first God, then each other, and finally your child, so that in the providence of God they will one day be loved into Jesus' arms as his child. Your witnesses to these commitments that parents make to instruct their children and raise them in the ways of the Lord. And then we turn to the congregation and ask you if you commit to so love and support and come alongside them in that endeavor. The church commits to help families in raising their children to know and love the Lord. So how can you do that? Mentor our young moms and dads. You've been there. You've gone through the ups and downs of parenting, and you have a wealth of wisdom that you can pass along to to parents who are in the thick of it right now. If you've never had kids, you have years of marriage experience. Mentor our moms and dads on how to be better husbands and wives in front of their children. Now, speaking of the children, all of our kids who are in here now, elementary and high school, I want to give you a challenge as well. Observe your parents. Listen to them, not just when they're talking to you, but listen to when they talk to one another. Pay attention to how much they love one another. Jesus Christ loves you even more than that. We have another opportunity this week during Vacation Bible School to minister to families who aren't part of 
of, of our family at Signal Mountain Bible Church. Uh, yet we get to teach their children all about God's Word. Um, some of these parents know the Lord and some don't. Uh, if you're volunteering this week, I want to challenge you to get to know these parents. Speak into their lives. We have them for a week. Uh, get to know them. Encourage them in their walk as they train up their child. When we speak of family ministry here at SNBC, we're not talking about a program that our staff and our volunteers are to develop. It must be the organic fabric of our body. I want to close by reading Psalms 78, 1 through 7. On Wednesday, Leah had spoken about how much this passage influenced her call to devote her life to student ministry. But my prayer uh, is that this passage would be a hallmark of Signal Mountain Bible Church. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which he, we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a, a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are God. You alone are our rock and our salvation. God, cause our hearts to draw near to you. Cause us to love you more deeply today than yesterday. God, instill in us a heart to see the next generation sing of your praises. And may your Holy Spirit give us the words to say, to diligently teach our children the truths about who you are and how we're to live as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us one more time as we close with the hymn, How Great Thou Art. It's number four in the hymn book.